the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed he is, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us for the 29th day of August. My goodness. The uh, kind of semi-quasi-official end of summer pretty much on its way. At least back when I was a kid during the Stone Age, we kind of looked at Labor Day as the sort of official end of summer and back into uh, more serious business, fun and frivolity over with and all that good stuff. So whatever you're doing on this August the 29th, a Tuesday, good to have you join us on the program. We are, of course, here for a couple of hours every evening from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life and your world. And that's a big part of our agenda today. So without any fancy uh, fanfare, let's just jump right in, shall we? couple of stories to talk about. If you have been dialing around looking for your favorite TV show over the past um, several weeks, you're probably wondering, what is going on? You've maybe not heard about the Hollywood writers' strike. That is going on. There's also a hotel workers' strike to the south of us. And added to the list, the potentiality of Kaiser Hospital employees going out on strike as well. We're going to talk a bit about the implications of an aspect related to the strike that um, is kind of unusual, and we'll tell you what that's all about in a moment. But I want to lead off as we welcome our guest in the first hour, certainly no stranger to our microphones. He is a lawyer, an author, a CPA, a constitutional historian, and always a delight to have join us on the program, Mr. Bob Zadek. And Bob, how are you? I'm just fine. Thank you for inviting me back on the show, Craig. I always appreciate it. It's a pleasure to share my thoughts with you, have you share your thoughts with me, and with our friends out there who are good enough to listen. You bet. So always a so delight. Much. Hey, Bob, I want to start off with something, and I, I don't want to blindside you here, because it's not really the, the primary focus of our discussion today, but given the fact that, yet again in the news, there is this rumbling going on, we're hearing more and more about the 14th Amendment. Uh, there apparently has been some discussion in states, including California, Oregon, Colorado, and Georgia. Georgia in a push to try to encourage those states' secretaries of state to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballots on the reasoning that he's in violation of the 14th Amendment. And, of course, lots of opinions going back and forth about all of this. Many, I think, legal scholars would would certainly concur that it's a bit uh, uh, unmarked or, or unfamiliar territory.
territory in that while this has been a part of the Constitution for uh, many, many years, it's never been used. And I'm curious if you've got any thoughts, care to opine on whether or not this is something that um, opponents of Donald Trump could successfully deploy? And if so, how complicated is it? My reading of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment seems to suggest that it's automatic. It talks nothing about a decision by a court or a trial or any movement by the United States Congress. It just basically says if you've been involved in an insurrection, you are not eligible to hold office. What say ye? You know, Craig, when my clients um, in my law practice ask my opinion on something, they really don't want my opinion, or at least not my bare opinion. What I do is I, I rely upon the statutes, the case law, the common law, and things of that nature to guide me. So it's an informed opinion. But instead, tonight we start off the show with asking me a question, which if you were my client, I would tell you to take your business elsewhere. So because, because where do I look? Now, just so the audience can follow this discussion, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, well, the 14th Amendment, as we all know, is one of three amendments which collectively are called the Civil War Amendments. 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Uh, of course, they were passed uh, during and after the Civil War. Uh, and Section 3, which you correctly identified, says, and it's very clear, I'm just going to paraphrase, no person shall be elected president or vice president of the country um, if uh, they shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion, uh, insurrection or rebellion against the states or the federal government, or given comfort to the enemy, etc. Okay, now, well, let's, when you want to know what a statute, or in this case the Constitution means, you look at precedent, you look at what the cases teach us. Well, lots of luck, there aren't any, because it's never come up before. So therefore, therefore, if a court were deciding it, and you in your introduction made it very clear that it's not even clear that a court gets to decide. We don't know how it works, but ultimately somebody is going to sue something. After all, this is America, and suing somebody is as American as apple pie. So therefore, somebody's going to sue somebody, and that poor judge is going to have to be the first one in 240-odd years to decide what what the heck this means. Now, there's precedent. That is, there was a civil war going on, and they didn't want insurrectionists running for high office. Well, what some people would say, we have a civil war now, but that's kind of dramatic, and I don't buy it, and you're just playing with words. So I don't know what the heck it means. I don't know who has standing. Remember, in... In lots of controversies, especially involving the Constitution, there's always a question of, does the plaintiff have standing? And you only have standing if you're affected by the outcome. Now, but the affected can't be you're just a citizen, and you might have a president who violated Section 3. That's not going to be enough to give you standing. So it can't just be any citizen. So if it can't be any citizen... Who is going to be the plaintiff? 
God, heck, who knows? So I don't know how it works. I don't know whether it's a lawsuit. I don't know if a secretary of state or election official can decide unilaterally, well, I think he committed insurrection. So he's not getting on the ballot in Michigan. And by the way, Michigan is one of the battleground states for this. And how does it even work? So nobody knows, in my opinion, for all that it is worth, and I'll quickly say not much, but for my opinion, for all that it is worth, would seem, I would suggest that there has to be a conviction or a judicial finding, because it's not, because um, insurrection per se is not a crime, at least not in the Constitution, so it's got to be a crime elsewhere, but there has to be uh, a finding of that Donald Trump committed insurrection, whatever the heck that single word standing alone means, did he commit insurrection? And then, there having been a finding, then the, the fun starts where states, secretaries of state, will throw him off, off the ballot, or maybe they won't. And then a citizen can sue, cannot sue, who knows? What if they put him, take him off the ballot? Have they violated his rights? I mean, who knows? To me, it's nowhere at it's nowhere that anybody except for extremists want to go. And most importantly, most importantly, we are closer than we have ever been to letting the courts make what is at its core political decisions. And once the courts start making political decisions, who can be our representatives and our elected officials? We now have torn up portions of the Constitution. That's not the country our founders gave us. And I hope the heck nothing comes of this other than some talk show noise. Well, and what you allude to, in fact, may be the biggest and, and uh, most persuasive argument against attempting this, because it does open up uh, such a Pandora's box and the notion that the Constitution, while stipulating that you're not qualified to run for office, um, is is short on specificity. And so, as you point out, in our litigious society, it immediately goes to a court. Now, suddenly, you'll have a court enter into this, as you point out. It's one thing to find whether or not a law is in harmony with the original intent and what is enshrined in the Constitution, which is sort of principally the, the job of the Supreme Court. It's a whole different issue when they get involved, as you point out, in the granular level that could be interpreted as um, not interpreting the constitutionality of laws or actions, but rather actually engaging in politics. And I think you're right. You open up that door and you might as well begin to uh, to ring the uh, the death knoll on democracy because uh, if you open it or head down that road, where does one stop? And, and the answer is potentially not until it's too late. So I think at the end of the day, your answer is the best answer, and that is that while this might be for great debate on college and university law school uh, campuses, um, it's probably an area that we don't want to venture into. Although it's ironic because obviously Congress felt strong enough about this during or post-Civil War 
to enshrine this in the Constitution, and yet I, I suppose from my layman's very poor perspective, um, while, while it might be strong in its sense of forcefulness, it's really weak in specificity, and maybe at the very core, that's what's most problematic about this. And let's remember, let's, um, as we get close to this discussion, that a court has to apply the word insurrection. And they have to, if you are an originalist judge, you have to apply the word as the meaning that it had when it was enacted in in the 1860, I think 1863, but I'm not certain of that which year. And that requires a whole inquiry. And I always start, lawyers like words, because words can narrow down the disagreement. And insurrection means, uh, if you want to quote the dictionary, which is always a good starting point, it's an act an act or instance of revolting against civil authority or an established government. Revolting. Now, wasn't Black Lives Matter clearly an act of revolting against civil authority? Wasn't the uh, the protest against Wall Street? Yeah, I was going to say Occupy Wall Street. Good example. Occupy. So, so, so do we now cheapen the word insurrection? So anything you say that's protesting the government, and what is an act? It's an act or instance. That seems like a single act. So what if you spent an hour, an hour, revolting against civil authority? You have committed the act of insurrection according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So where do we go? So no judge, other no judge, would ever want to go there. How does anybody take that position? And as you know, the Supreme Court and lower courts try very hard to avoid deciding what's called in the, in the case law uh, a political question. The courts recognize certain issues are best left to the political process, which means the voters, and not left to the courts. The courts are just the wrong place to decide whether Donald Trump is fit for office. It should be done at the ballot box. We, uh, any court say, go to the ballot box, find it out there. We often hear reform of Social Security, for example, as being a, the political third rail, meaning danger, stay away from it, because it's wrought with all kinds of political um, hazards. And and perhaps the 14th Amendment, Section 3, could be, in this instance, considered the judicial third rail, that if you try to go there, it is wrought with all kinds of potential hazards. And perhaps at the end of the day, as you suggest, Bob, the best place for these sorts of debates to be settled is not in a uh, in a uh, witness box, but instead at the ballot box. Bob Zadak with us tonight. You know his voice. Undoubtedly, you know his work. He is a lawyer, an author, a CPA, constitutional historian. By the way, you can check out Bob's work online by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. Least you think this is the discussion tonight about the 14th Amendment. It's been in the news. I thought, why not talk to our resident constitutional historian to get his insights on it. But what we're really going to talk about is striking. Not 
just the fact that it happens, but when it happens, as it has in the case of the writer's strike, you certainly have the hotel worker strike. There is the potentiality of Kaiser going on strike. Um, there used to be a day and an age when there was a strike fund available that would help striking workers get a little stipend of income coming in because the moment you stop working, obviously your employer will stop paying you. There's a proposal at foot that would suggest you want to receive unemployment benefits because you are technically unemployed. But are you? We're going to explore that next as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Labor unions are in the news, some of it the tooting of their own proverbial horn. For example, recent data released by the AFL-CIO says support amongst Americans for unions is on the rise. More than two-thirds of Americans apparently supporting unions, according to the AFL-CIO. More Americans believe in unions than like chocolate ice cream. This is according to the president of AFL-CIO. So far, there have been more than 200 strikes this year. Ten times more than two years ago. But the current strike environment, especially in California, is notable. And we've asked Bob Zadek to help unpack many of the details for us. I have um, suggested to you that uh, there's been an impact in your uh, summer television viewing because of the writer's strike, the actor's strike. There is a hotel worker strike. Now Kaiser is suggesting their workers may go on strike. And historically, when they strike, they go to make a point. Hopefully there's a little bit of pressure on both sides with the interruption in business to come to the bargaining table and push things along. But a proposal afoot in California may have some impact on just how quickly strikes get settled. Because where historically you go on strike, that is essentially a voluntary action, and therefore you are not qualified or eligible for unemployment benefits. But... Unions are suggesting, oh, no, we need to change that law. And Bob, let's break down some of the details here. First and foremost, that seems to me on face value to be a potentially outrageously expensive move for a state like California that struggles to make ends meet in many respects, not least of which is that we are apparently currently spending more than $1.1 billion in unemployment benefits every year than what the state takes in. So suggesting to add more workers to uh, that list of unemployment recipients uh, suggests to me that this is an economic disaster waiting to happen. Craig, I... I I'm taking a very deep breath and I'm issuing, I'm saying to myself, a quiet prayer because I'm about to do something dangerous. I'm going to slightly disagree with you. Gulp. Here I go. You would suggest that the unemployment benefits are paid for out of California's revenue in general, which means it's the state of California that bears the cost. That's not quite how it works. Unemployment insurance in each state is a separate fund. It is a fund that employers pay into. And employers are assessed a, a, a rate of 
a percentage of their payroll. And the rate is based upon historical experience of how many former workers for any company became unemployed. And if a company or if a company suffers a lot of unemployment, that is their workers quit or are fired and they don't get another job, then the state keeps track of it and charges that employer a slightly higher rate, not dramatically, but a higher rate. And when the unemployment insurance fund starts to run out of money, they might raise the rates for everybody to make sure the fund, sort of like Social Security, but Social Security is fake. But that's where the money comes from. That means, that means, Craig, that if the state pays striking workers unemployment, that's going to deplete the fund, which means who's going to have to pay for it, which means the employers have to pay for it. So that means that the employers are forced to increase, forced by law to increase the compensation they pay to striking workers. Because now striking workers are guaranteed of income even if they strike, which means at the end of this analysis, which means that in effect, striking workers are given a guaranteed annual income, even if they strike. Now, but who pays? Well, the quick answer is, and it's incorrect, is the employers pay. But the employers are not stupid. They have to make a profit. So what does that mean? That means that the employers who want to get the workers back to work, say, okay, workers, we're gonna give you a lot more money. So now what happens? Now streaming services charge more. And movies theaters, are there still movie theaters? Maybe not, but movie theaters such as there are, they charge more. And cable channels and, and apps charge more. That means everybody listening to this show tonight is subsidizing the wages of somebody who no doubt is earning more than they are. And ultimately, the only people who pay are consumers. So by the government, California, paying unemployment benefits, it's easy. It doesn't cost California much at all. All they are doing is currying favor with the unions in the state of California and who pays? The people such as you and I who watch mediocre television that's being streamed to us. It's a secret, and so it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt the networks, except for the fact that you and I as consumers of entertainment, we don't have to watch streaming. We have other distractions. Uh, live events, sporting events, the movies, whatever we do, symphonies. We and there comes a point that we decide that the cost of entertainment in streaming is simply too expensive, not worth it, and we stop patronizing it. So all of that is messes up the marketplace, produces bad quality stuff, puts the wrong people out of business because California legislature wants to put their thumb on the scale rather than let the marketplace decide. And Craig, if I may, one more thought. Strikes in general, strikes, ought to be illegal. 
Why? Because a worker who is striking wants more money, obviously. That's usually what they want. Of course, benefits, but mostly one way or another, they want more compensation. Why is that bad? Because everybody should be paid what they are worth. That's a principle that I dare say every listener to us this evening would nod their heads in silent agreement. People should be paid what they're worth. What they are worth is what a willing buyer for their services is willing to pay in an uncoerced negotiation. And if they are not happy with their salary, it's because they are not worth more. If an employer who was going to pay somebody less than their worth, nobody would work for them, the employer would go out of business. Therefore, strikes are an attempt by workers to be paid more than they are really worth. How un-American is that? Well, and what is most, in my mind, uh, of, of several layers of this, but, but perhaps most problematic about this is, is and we'll, let's work off, off what you suggest, that, uh, you know, if you're not happy with what you're being paid, you're being paid less than what you're worth. You can vote with your feet, and if there's a mass majority of people at a given company that that agree with you, then everybody walks out and goes and finds another job somewhere else, and that employer is forced to do one of thing, two things: go out of business or pay the workers more money. But I, but I think what's problematic with this is it it hands a tool to the unions to manipulate the employer into increasing wages, benefits, whatever it might be, and it it does so at the expense of the state. Well, I agree, it is true that a lot of the contribution into the unemployment fund in California is done by employers, uh, but not entirely, and in fact, some of the numbers are way out of whack in terms of what we spend on unemployment versus what the system takes in. So, of course, who picks up the slack? The state does. Who's the state well at the end of the day you and i are the state at least when it comes to uh, to the the revenue end of all of this and so i i find it problematic that a tool would be handed to unions to be able to put pressure on an employer to increase benefits and you're going to benefit from unemployment wages when historically a person who gets fired is customarily eligible for unemployment wages. But if you decide, you know what, I don't like this job anymore, and you decide to get up and walk out, that is a voluntary dismissal. And under those terms, you are not eligible for unemployment. So where do they think that they ought to be engaged in a voluntary withdrawal from employment and yet still receive unemployment Benefits that that seems to be pretty manipulative in my mind. And the reason the unions support it is they say, um, "Hey, if you don't give the workers unemployment insurance, the workers run the risk of homelessness. How dramatic! Or food insecurity. Well, they run the risk." because of their own decisions. In other words, a worker makes a decision to, in the short term, forego a salary because they have made a calculation, or they better have, that the ultimate benefits, the long-run benefits of higher wages as a result of the strike will more than compensate them for the short-term shortage of 
income. That's a calculation they are free to make. And when the unions suggest the strike, every worker should make that calculation. Ask the union leaders, how much more are we going to get if we strike? How long will the strike take? I have to make a decision. If the union leader said, we're not sure, then a worker has got to roll the dice. Do they strike in the hopes that it works out, but they could end up minus? Or do they not strike because they prefer the security of existing salary and not go on strike? Everybody should take care of themselves and make that decision. And since strikes are based upon majority, the union members will vote, will make private calculations what's best for them, and that dictates whether there's a strike. Everybody gets, makes their own decision, and they get what they wish. A strike imposes, um, forces people not to go to work if they're union members. It's They're locked out. They don't get to decide for themselves. Well, and this seems to be, and I'm going to have you articulate your your insights on this, Bob, from a legal standpoint after the break, but but it, it seems to be also a significantly uh, unfair advantage here in that my assumption is that we all effectively enter into a contract. It, it might be a written contract. It may be a verbal contract, but we enter into a contract with our employer, and that contract for all of us essentially is this, that you are going to pay me X salary or or hourly wage in exchange for me providing to you why that could be labor that could be knowledge it could be a combination of the same and that's our agreement now if one of the two parties decides particularly in an at will state to to withdraw from that agreement that essentially says i am no longer interested in giving you my knowledge or services in exchange for money goodbye or i am no longer interested in paying you for the goods, I'm sorry, for the, the services or labor that or knowledge that you were providing me, goodbye, and we part. Maybe not amicably, but we part. To suggest somehow here that a union can say, well, we're going to withdraw the services being provided, but we want our, our employees that we represent to continue to reap the benefits, even though they are not engaging in any kind of a service, seems to smack of cake and eat it, too. We'll talk about that when we come back. Bob Zadek with us tonight, lawyer, author, CPA, constitutional historian. You can check Bob's work out online by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We're talking about a proposal that's being bantied about here in California, quite frankly, being led by the California state legislature that would try to change California law to make striking workers eligible for unemployment benefits. But wait a minute. If employment is voluntary and you voluntarily disengage, why do you think you're still eligible for benefits? And does it, as I suggested a moment ago, create a cake-and-eat-it-too scenario? That and more granular detail as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. San Francisco Bay Area has a long and sometimes sordid history of unions. The Longshoremen's Union was founded right here in San Francisco by Harry Bridges back in 1930-something. And um, 
It's interesting as we talk about the power of unions, um, this proposal in the California state legislature that would essentially allow striking workers to be eligible for benefits. I'm wondering, Bob Zadek, if this doesn't set up quite the unfair advantage. You know, if you think about unions and union strikes, normally there's a little bit of pain to go all the way around, meaning the union workers walk out, they don't get any pay, the company doesn't get any work. So there's a pretty strong motivation, hopefully, on both sides to come together and and reach some sort of an agreement. Um, I guess it will be the equivalent of we're going out on strike, so the striking workers will all get an unemployment, and a whole case of scab workers will come in and go to work for the uh, the employer so that nobody really gets harmed. Uh, but, of course, we know that in reality it doesn't really function like that. Doesn't this essentially set up a scenario that's pretty one-sided? Of course it does. It's supposed to. Look who sponsors the legislation. Our dear friend Lorena Gonzalez Fletcher. Remember her? She was the sponsor of AV5. Remember that? 2019? That's That was legislation still being litigated where gig workers, predominantly Lyft and Uber drivers, who are independent contractors under her bill, which is now the law in California, although it's being litigated, under her bill, they are employees and therefore entitled to uh, wage and hour limitations, minimum wages and the like, which will destroy the business model and deny the gig workers who drive for Lyft Uber and Lyft because they like the convenience of picking their own hours, they now are forced to become employees, hurting drivers, hurting us customers, and hurting the business model. That's what her act one is, her act two, to show her deep fondness for business in California, is this bill. And remember the economics. I ask our listeners, remember the economics. If this bill becomes law, here's what happens. The Democratic elected officials have gained the undying loyalty of the unions because the Democratic legislature gave them a gift. But it's not a sincere gift because you would think the giver writes a check or delivers the the subject of the gift. Here... All the legislature did was impose a cost on the employer, which the employer passes through to the customer. So this bill means that everybody who indirectly benefits from the service of the writers and the actors, etc., us customers, we pay more so that the California legislature can get reelected by union members. That's what's happening. When the smoke clears, that's exactly what happened. So we are patsies. We are subsidizing the longevity of Democratic elected officials. Enjoy your higher streaming costs, everybody. The good news is you're helping keep legislatures in the Congress, in the 
state legislature. You know, what's also particularly troubling about this, and I, I kind of alluded to it, Bob, a moment ago, and that is this notion that, that when a union decides to go out on strike, that there's a little pain felt all the way around. The, the business of the employer gets shut down. They can no longer deliver um, products or goods and services because the employees have walked out. So they're feeling the pain. The employees, meanwhile, are now being deprived, voluntarily so, of a paycheck. So th- there's a little bit of a motivation there on both ends to come to the negotiating table and reach an agreement. But it seems to me that this swings the pendulum all the way over to the side of the workers without any regard to the employer whatsoever. Talk about anti-business. Uh, if the union knows, hey, we don't have to deplete our strike fund, we'll just put everybody on unemployment. Now, granted, it may not be equal at what I think California max is like $1,800 a month. Uh, it may not be equal to your normal take-home pay, but a lot of people can manage to get along. Certainly far more attractive than getting a check of zero. So doesn't this entirely remove the the motivation to come to the bargaining table when you know that you're going to get a paycheck no matter what? Of course it does, Craig. You're exactly right. And you use the word negotiation, the bargaining table. That assumes there is negotiation, and that assumes there is bargaining, i.e. give and take. But this is sort of not a negotiation any more than your money or your life is a sincere choice. <laughs> and and you mentioned something, Greg, it was quite prescient early in the show tonight. You mentioned, you used the phrase voting with one's feet. Um, I, I know you'll recall that. And applying that, let's remember that writers and actors and the production of entertainment is clean industry. States love this industry. It doesn't pollute. The wages are high. It employs ancillary services like catering and utilities and drivers. States love this. States compete to have films and entertainment made in their state. New Mexico, very aggressive. Louisiana, very aggressive. Washington State, very aggressive. Vancouver, Canada, very, very aggressive. So what does that mean? The employers will say, that's it. California doesn't work for us. They are too against us. And they will simply move. And if anybody thinks they can't move because all the talent is in L.A., well, how naive of you. Look what happened during COVID. Where workers lived meant nothing about where they worked. That was COVID taught us that. So what's going to happen is streaming services will simply move production to New Mexico or Louisiana where they will be welcomed with open arms in a much more welcoming environment. And California will lose the jobs, lose the employment, and yet again, business, in this case entertainment, will leave California for a place that 
values their businesses more. Well, let me, let me expand this still even broader, Bob, because while for the purposes of this discussion might be related to the current writer's strike, I mean, broadly, this piece of proposed legislation, of course, would apply, I would imagine, to all union workers. So here's where it really gets dangerous. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, as of last year, the full, full year that they have information for, California had 2670000 17,000 union members. Now, imagine if every one of those employers suddenly realized, boy, they've got us over a barrel. They could go out on strike and shut us down for days, weeks, months without any major concern as they're gathering their unemployment benefits. They could effectively bankrupt our organization bankrupt our company. Why wouldn't this therefore send a message to every company that has union workers? Hey, California is not for you and to move out of the state because the risk of this lopsided deal is just uh, beyond the pale for companies. And it's not just hypothetical, Craig. Uh, look what happened in the auto industry, when all of the auto manufacturing or auto assembly plants, more accurately, left Michigan and uh, the upper Midwest and went to Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi, uh, and the like. Why? because those states had right-to-work laws, which means you can't be compelled to join a union as a condition of employment. In other words, they were not anti-union, they just weren't pro-union. There's nothing anti-union about those states, but in the environment we live in now, if you're not pro-union, you're anti-union. Well, no, those states are not anti-union, they just are neutral which unions, if a state is neutral, unions will lose because unions cannot gain members unless the state puts the thumb on the scale. And that's what's happening in California. And these, uh, I invite the audience, put a post-it on your monitor, Bob Zadek, and if I may speak for you, Craig Roberts predict, if this becomes law, you will start to see industry leave especially entertainment industry, leave California for greener pastures. Let's close on a final note, and that is the potential fiscal impact of all of this. Um, you know, you, you, you corrected me earlier on that there is a contribution made by employers into the state unemployment fund. But as, as I suggested, uh, the amount that the state has been collecting over years versus what it has been paying out is extremely lopsided. And if suddenly now you empower 2,617,000 additional California state workers, Workers with the ability to go on strike and collect their unemployment wages. I mean, doesn't this have the possibility of really putting a monkey wrench into a budget that's already stressed by a decrease in income taxes, a decrease in real estate property taxes because of a slump in values? And that added to that, when we did have a little bit of a, uh, um, a surplus in the California state coffers, our governor decided it was more important important to give away so-called stimulus checks as if a check for eight nine hundred dollars or twenty four hundred dollars changed the world 
you're exactly of course it's going to have fiscal impact and and of course Newsom is staring down the barrel of a huge budget deficit right on the heels of enormous surpluses only one or two years ago. Talk about mismanagement. And Craig, I know you have threatened me that we're running out of time. I have no intention of stopping talking. You can do anything you want, but I'm going to continue to talk, Craig, just so you know. So I don't care if you turn me off or not. But a parting thought. What if you have an employer and no union, and you have an employee who says, I want to raise, the employee, the single employee says, okay, I am going out on strike. <laughs> I'm just, I'll be on strike. I'm going to have just me. I'm going to have a sign and I'm going to have a ticket. And I'm going to have donuts delivered to the front of the building. Just like I'm going, I'm going to be on strike. And I want my unemployment insurance while I'm on strike until I drive you to your knees. Could there be a single employee, non-union strike? Gee, I'd love to read the statute and see if I can squeeze into that one. That would be a, a wonderful loophole, Craig. I hope your employees at the station don't catch on. Yeah, you got a good point on that one. I may be the first one to go out on that kind of a strike. <laughs> Talk about getting your cake and eating it, too. Uh, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze how far the state is willing to go and pander. And, uh, you know, uh, your observation regarding Governor Newsom, I think, is, is bang on the money. No wonder there's overtures that he has interest in Washington, D.C. He wants to get out of Sacramento before it burns to the ground. Bob Zadek, lawyer, author, CPA, constitutional historian, always a delight and an education to have you with us. You want to find out more about what Bob is up to, information about his books, all kinds of great resources, check out his website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Bob, as always, we appreciate the time. 559 from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.